Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of this church. And, and let me say happy anniversary to you all. It is a special day to think uh, that God has sustained us. Verse 6 that we're going to look at today is really a beautiful verse where Paul is talking to a young church, probably much like this, probably much smaller in a lot of ways, in a foreign city. And he says to you, what God has begun, he's going to complete. And so what an amazing testimony on our uh, venturing into year number four that we can look back as Dave prayed on God's faithfulness to us. It would have been so easy for this church to cave and to fold. As you're planning for a church, you never build in COVID. You don't think about building a community where we have to live life together and say, we're going to separate for two years in the early part of our history. And as Dave mentioned to me, there were those months where we were watching television together. You had your computers open, and we would see how many views and how many you know, entities were watching with us, and it would be in the 30s and the 40s. And of course, that meant children were in the room, so maybe there were 100 people watching. Uh, but it would have been very easy to say that after two years of separation and only 11 months in person, uh, that we would say, enough is enough. There's a lot of great churches out there. Let's go and find somewhere else to worship. But there's a resilience and there's a faithfulness, and God is building Trinity, and we're looking forward to uh, how he's going to propel us forward. But welcome. We're starting a new series that we have entitled Practicing Freedom. I'm going to set this up for us in just a moment. Um, but, you know, we did spend somewhere around seven or eight months in the book of John. That's a long time, isn't it? We cut it in half, we had Advent in the middle, and we only made it to about chapter 13, I think. And so this preacher was preaching, but we're going to take a break from John, we're going to jump into one of Paul's letters. And so what I'm going to do before I kind of give you some of the rhythm of this particular section is I'm going to give you a little background on this letter in a moment. And this is not something that I will do week after week, but I want you to understand that these are real letters. You may not know that. These are real letters written to real people. If Christianity is new to you, when you open the New Testament, there's a lot of strange language and strange titles. Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians. What's going on with the spelling, right? If I don't understand it, I'm not going to eat it. If I can't pronounce it, I'm not going to read it. Oftentimes, that's how we feel about Christianity or maybe opening the Scripture. Uh, but these are just letters to cities. It could have been 
the San Diegans. It could have been the New Yorkers, right? This is just a letter to a group of people in a place. And they have real things going on, real history, real things they're being confronted by. And throughout this letter, we'll get to that. But I just want to remind you, this is a letter, and I'm going to give you more context in a moment. But let me start here with a quote from Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust survivor. He was a doctor. He's an author. He wrote an incredibly meaningful book called Man's Search for Meaning. And here's what Viktor Frankl said. He said, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Spoken from somebody who understands the cost and the concept of freedom. You can be walking the streets of our beautiful city with a beautiful life, wonderful family, and be ultimately enslaved. But it looks beautiful and you look liberated. Or you could be in a concentration camp with a heart that's free. See, and this is what Paul is getting at when you have to learn to practice freedom. Freedom doesn't just happen. You may be given certain rights and privileges, but to be able to step into the freedom, Paul is going to help us practice it, to try it on, and to see how it fits. Now, if you're new to Christianity, you may assume that our faith is singularly about forgiveness, forgiveness of sin through one man, Jesus Christ. But if you have ever done something that you know was not the right thing to do, it was wrong, you understand when there was punishment coming, when condemnation was coming your way, but somebody pronounced love and forgiveness and mercy and no more shame over your life. You understand that forgiveness also gives way to a beautiful thing called freedom, right? When you know that you have done something wrong, but then somebody says, I love you, I forgive you, the experience of that in the human soul is tremendous freedom, So Christianity isn't just about somebody who's given his life for you, though that the centerpiece of Christianity is, of course, the cross and the resurrection. But there's what's called the benefits of the cross and resurrection. There's implications of what Jesus has done. It's not just some historical fact. Oh, that's cool. Some guy died. No, he's a real and living God who comes and says, because I've died, freedom is your gift. And oftentimes we don't know, even if you've been in the church for a long time, you don't feel free. Let's be honest. There are all sorts of things looking to enslave, entrap, confuse you. And so as a church body, we are supposed to learn to practice freedom together. And that's what Paul is doing throughout this letter. We're beginning this series, and we've entitled it Practicing Freedom for a Reason. And of course, freedom is an incredibly valuable thing. Lots of wars, past and present, have been fought over the concept of freedom, but we are living through a cultural moment where freedom is being defined as the lack of constraints, right? We understand this. And of course, there's a lot of constraints that the past generations and the past decades have thrown off. There's a lot more freedoms for different types of people than there used to be, and this is a very good thing. We're still fighting for certain freedoms for groups of people. Freedom is an incredibly good thing, but we have defined it as the lack of constraint. Very simple. The fewer the restrictions, the wider the boundaries, the more free I will be to discover and to define 
what it means to be a happy human being. So don't put the pressure on me. Don't give me any boundaries. The wider the boundary, the more free I will be. But let me just say at the beginning, and we're going to revisit this throughout, that view of freedom is an illusion. And I'll give you an illustration as to why. That type of freedom doesn't work. What happens if I wake up one morning and I decide that I would like to be a world-class mountain climber? Never going to happen, but it's just an illustration. Okay, I don't love heights. Let's pretend I want to make it to the top of the world. I want to make it to the top of Mount Everest. But because I live in San Diego, I also love a place called In-N-Out. Love it. Can't stop going there. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner for me. I don't even know if they're open in the morning. We're going to go eat some In-N-Out. I want to make it to the top of the world, but I love my snacks. Which of these things is going to pan out? Can I have both? I want to be free to climb, but I also want to be free to eat whatever I'd like. It's not going to work not going to be able to do both. So what I'm going to have to choose is which of the freedoms, which of the constraints is of more value to me in this moment. As Tim Keller says, the question is not how I can live in complete freedom. The proper question is which freedom is the more important, the more truly liberating. In other words, real freedom is not necessarily the absence of all constraints, but it's choosing the right constraints. Right, the right things and the right freedoms to lose. So Paul's letter to this young church is going to help us with the practice of freedom in Christ and recognizing where we are imprisoned to people and places and circumstances and dreams and ambitions or bad theology. We have bad belief systems. We haven't understood properly. And then to help us put on the proper constraints, right, those best types of limitations, the kind that honor the Lord, that bless other people, and give you a tremendous amount of joy. That's a whole lot bigger than the moment, all right? So in some ways, this is point one, okay? I'm going to have three points for you. The last point is prayer. And I'm literally not going to say anything about it. I'm going to pray. So the first point isn't listed. I'm going to give you a little bit of background and color commentary on what's going on in this letter. Why does Paul write it? Who's Paul? Who are the Philippians? And we're going to jump into two more points. So a couple of things for us about the background of this letter. If you have a Bible, if you've taken notes, I would love for you to mark Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is some, some background understanding of Paul's foundation and founding of this church. Right? I get to plant a church with the team. We have planted Trinity. Paul planted churches all over the Mediterranean basin, largely in Greece and Turkey. And he's going to all of the Gentile non-Jewish cities, and he's making his way from city to city to city, planting and establishing new congregations. And in Acts chapter 16, we find that the story of the founding of the church at Philippi takes place in this part. And I'm going to give you a couple of details here. But as he comes to the city of Philippi, which is a Roman colony, make note of that, a Roman colony in a Greek-speaking country. So he's in Macedonia. Philippi is a Macedonian city, but it's a Roman colony. We're going to come to some of those details. And as he goes to this city of Philippi, he goes out. There's not even a church. There's no synagogue. There's not a Jewish presence. He doesn't necessarily know how to connect to anybody in the city, but he finds a group of women who are God-fearing. They're outside of Philippi praying on a Sabbath, praying on a Sunday, and he goes out and he engages with them, realizes that they are God-fearing, 
Paul and his team, they begin to pray and just to make connections and friendships. And one of the first women who actually ended up being the first convert on the soil of Europe, the European soil and the first Christian conversion was a woman by the name of Lydia. And then from Lydia, Christianity begins to expand to a young slave girl who was demon-possessed for a long time, and her life begins to change. And then Paul is imprisoned in Philippi. And while he's in prison, he ends up, I don't want to say he becomes good friends with the jailer. He does it, but God does some miraculous things in Paul's life, in the prisoner's life. They're set free, but they don't go anywhere. Remember that story? That God releases their chains, but they stay in their cell. The, The jailer was about to take his life. And they said, no, 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 we're still here. And the jailer and his family become Christians. This is the humble beginning of the church in Philippi. Just a few details that we know from Acts 16. A woman named Lydia, a demon-possessed woman, and a jailer and his family. And so what Paul is doing in this letter, he is largely writing to say, thank you. This is a thank you letter. He's thanking them for their friendship, for their partnership in the gospel. And of course, he's in some senses the founding father and he's looking back with fondness. This is an incredibly beautiful personal letter. He loves these folks and they love Paul. And it's a thank you letter. But he's thanking them. This is such important detail. He's thanking them from prison. Hey, the apostle Paul's in prison in this letter. Isn't it ironic that we've entitled it practicing freedom. Isn't that what Paul's heart is? He wants them to practice freedom, but he's constrained. He's probably literally chained to two guards sitting in house arrest. And at this point in the ancient Near East, most of the time prisoners were not given provision from their captors. Provision, food, clothing, shelter, all of these things that they needed to survive were given by friends and family in the region. The Romans weren't going to provide these things for them, and so family and friends had to provide it for the Apostle Paul. And so they sent a young man by the name of Epaphroditus with all of this money and probably food and clothing, and he goes on this long, potentially three to 800-mile journey, depending on where Paul was in prison, which we're not exactly sure. So it's a 300 to 800-mile journey with a young guy by the name of Epaphroditus who's got a knapsack on filled with cash and clothes, and he's writing to say thank you because Epaphroditus almost died getting all of this provision to the Apostle Paul. And he's saying thank you for your partnership. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Epaphroditus. We get to him later in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But it's a thank you letter for their love for Paul. But let me give you just a little bit of information and we'll move on about Philippi itself. There's a scholar, his name is Dr. Dennis Johnson. And this is what he says about the city. If you're a history buff, you'll like this. He writes, four centuries before Paul arrived, the city of Philippi had been taken over by King Philip II of Macedonia, father of Alexander the Great, hence the name Philippi. And the century before Paul arrived, Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian, and the general Mark Anthony defeated Caesar's assassins in a decisive battle fought just outside of Philippi. And the victors celebrated their triumph by constituting Philippi, a Roman colony, of course, in a Greek-speaking and a Greek nation. That meant that citizens of Philippi had the same legal rights and privileges as citizens of Rome, the capital of the empire. 
Many retired army veterans settled in Philippi, adding to the city's Roman flavor, which was reflected in its architecture and in its language. Although surrounded by Greek-speaking communities in the eastern Mediterranean, Philippi had Latin as its official language, and not surprisingly, Philippi prided itself on its religious devotion to the Roman emperors, in addition to worshiping indigenous pagan deities. Famous battle. Uh, Unique things in history, unique place, unique people coming to settle there. I picture a place like Coronado, a place like Coronado that's influential, that people have uh, have a military background, have come and they've settled, so there's power, there's influence, there's unique culture. Of course, you have the, the Roman emperor, and he's being set up as the deity, and so you have all of this conflict kind of underneath the surface of planting a new church in a Roman or a Latin speaking city with Greek influence, trying to figure out how does the gospel make sense of this news that Jesus is the king, you're supposed to worship him and not Caesar. You've got all of these beautiful details colliding in this incredible letter that's filled with joy and filled with love. They love each other. It's Paul's most tender letter. He's writing from prison, and yet he's practicing freedom. Right? He's filled with tremendous joy. So really the two things I'm going to take you through after we have that intro are partnership and progress, and then I will pray, all right? Partnership, progress, and prayer, but I'm going to read Paul's prayer that begins there at verse 9. So let's look at partnership, and again at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of the letter. Most of the time, you probably skip this. Your eyes move quickly. You're not even thinking about the introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul introduces this thank you letter by introducing himself and his young friend and his mentee. His name is Timothy. He introduces them as servants of Jesus Christ. Now, the word that's used there is actually the word doulos. And that word in Greek is most often translated, not necessarily as bondservant or servant, but it's often translated as slave. So this is Paul's introduction to this young church. My name is Paul. Here's my young friend, Timothy. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. He is our master. We work for him. And this may sound like a strange way to begin a letter. It may sound strange or hard or unattractive until we accept the fact that to be human is always to be under the control of someone or something else. Think about that. Something is always guiding us through life. It could be your parents, right? It could be your children. It could be your dreams of greatness. It could be your paycheck. But something is going to give you a guidance through life. It's going to provide tips and tricks and a roadmap. And Paul is saying, here I am. Listen, in other places, if you look at Paul's letter, you know that he often introduces himself as an apostle. And he is an apostle. He's an incredible man. He's brilliant. Uh, the the uh, equivalent of multiple PhDs. This is a brilliant human being who has shaped human history through his letters, through his writing. And here he introduces himself as a doulos. 
He's like, you want to know who I really am? I'm a servant. Jesus is my master. I'm a slave to the king. And all of a sudden they're going, oh, I don't know if I like this introduction. Just say thank you, right? Just say thank you. Just to send Epaphroditus back to us. But this is his introduction to, their, to them. And what he's saying is he's going to show them consistently how being a slave to Jesus Christ has actually set him free. You see? This is what he's going to show them. Being a slave to Jesus Christ has set his heart free. He says, Jesus is my master, and I am more free than I've ever been in my whole life. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So he gives his introduction. I'm a slave. Here's my friend. We're slaves. Jesus is my master. And then he comes in and says, thank you for this partnership in the gospel. Now, the word partnership is maybe a familiar word for some of you. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it's often translated as fellowship. But let me say, we have watered it down within the Christian church. Uh, we've made it about kind of like casual conversation in the back around the welcome table where you're like, what's up, buddy? I can't remember your name. I've called you buddy for weeks. What's up, chief? What's up, Fred? How are you doing? Right? It's a little bit of fellowship, a little bit of hanging out, a little bit of uh, I know nothing about you, but I say the same thing week after week. We're having Christian fellowship. Right? We're having fun. We're doing some, I don't even know what we're doing. We're doing Christian things in Christian ways that non-Christians don't want to be a part of, and it's weird and strange. We've made koinonia into fellowship like that. But that's not what this word is about. This is a word that doesn't just say, I wish you well, I'll see you next week. We're having a little bit of fun at church for 30 minutes. This is saying we are invested deeply. There's a mutual commitment to one another. It's not just well-wishing. Most of the time this word is used, it has financial commitment behind it. In other words, it's got backbone. And what Paul is saying is, I thank you for your partnership in the gospel. This is now a joint venture. You could replace that word. This is a joint venture with all of us together. Koinonia, partnership, joint venture in the gospel. Thank you for sending the money, sure. Thank you for sending Epaphroditus. I appreciate the extra cloak. It gets cold in jail in the winter. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. But we are in the grace gospel business together. Do not let me lose you, please. Right, we are in the grace gospel business together. But these people, right, these Philippians, they're not missionaries. They're not preachers. They're not small group leaders per se. Right? They're not apostles. These are merchants and farmers, and these are jailers. And see, for Paul, Philippians, the partnership with this church was less about money than it was about a mindset, okay? Write that word down. This is a mindset. This is what we're saying. When we come together as a group of Christ followers, we have a partnership in the gospel. By the way, you're not partnering with me and you're not partnering with Trinity. Right? You're partnering with Jesus in this work called the kingdom of God that he uses local congregations to propel people forward. And you're going to do it as doctors and lawyers and plumbers and stay-at-home moms and dads. You've got all of these things you're doing, and Paul's going to look at you and say, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. And you go, I don't know if we're partners. I mean, are we really partners? I'm grateful that I'm a Christian. Uh, maybe God has broken into my life, but I wouldn't call myself a partner in the gospel. That's not my mindset. 
I really want that to become your driving ambition. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we are partnered in the gospel. And you get to be an artist, and you get to be a teacher, and you get to be a doctor. And we are going out into the world seven days a week, but there's a couple of hours throughout our week that we join together to be encouraged and to be nurtured and to be reminded that we share a koinonia, we share fellowship. And it's a lot more than a pat on the back. It's a mindset that says my life is designed around his ambition and not mine. What would that take in your life to make that sort of shift? Paul is reminding them of their partnership in the gospel. Money is valuable. Clothing is valuable. But he goes, more than that, I want you to have this heart. We are partners in the gospel. Go do what God has called you and gifted you to do. But when we come back into this space, we're reminding one another of this incredible thing that God has invited us into. I am an athlete, not was, all right? I am an athlete. I like to say I was an athlete. I still play sports. I run a lot. But sports and teams, no longer on teams. Now I'm more of a coach or kind of a parent coach who gets in the way. I've told you multiple stories. I'm not coaching Mason yet, but I'm coaching Mason, right? So I love sports. I love to be around teams. But this word is probably pretty much closer to the concept of being on a team because when you're on a team, you have one ambition, We want to crush the other team. No, we want to win games, right? We have championships in mind. We are practicing throughout the weeks, and when we play on Tuesday or Friday or Saturday, we are there to win. I'm there to make you better. You fall down, we all rush to pick you up off the floor. This is what it means to be a team. That means you have a driving focus and a driving ambition. I know why I'm in the gym during the week, because I've got something I'm supposed to be about when we show up on the court together. This is a beautiful picture of all in, all together, having as much fun as possible, but it's a mindset. What would it look like if Trinity began to adopt that mindset? We are in partnership together. We are partners in the gospel. You get to go out and be lawyers and doctors and moms and dads, but are you partnering the gospel in that space? I had an incredible conversation with a man a couple of years ago, and he's a small business owner, and he said, you know what? I felt called to ministry. And he said, I kind of abandoned it. I didn't have enough encouragement. I have enough people around me pushing me forward, but I always wanted to be a pastor, and now I'm a CEO. I'm making a lot of money. He goes, I've got over 100 employees. The business is doing great. He goes, but there's part of my heart that always wishes I had ended up in the church. And I just stopped and said, have you ever thought about pastoring your employees? And he said, never thought of it. It even crossed his mind that that's where the partnership was going to take place. That's where the gospel was going to move. God had enabled him and gifted him to lead a business well. But take the partnership mentality into that space, right? Isn't it really unique that Jesus allows us to touch the most precious thing that he has to offer us? Last week, my family and I, we we went down to Palm Desert. We do a lot of different things when we're in Palm Desert, but one of the things that we like to do is go to the high-end car dealers, all right? We're not shopping. We're looking, okay? We are looking. This, I don't even know what this thing's called. It's just amazing. It's an Aston Martin. Penny's over there going, my dad's a preacher. It's never going to happen. Mason's got dreams of aspiration. He's thinking about it. We were looking at the price tags on these vehicles. Go back to the first one for a moment. We're looking at the price tags on these vehicles. This car, guess how much this car costs? $699,000. 
I said, do not touch that car. Do not breathe on that car. You, that's why Penny's like this. You see? She's like giving a thumbs up way far away. Yes. That's right, Penny. Good girl. Okay, Mason's 17 feet in the back, right? Don't get near the Aston Martin. But Lamborghini, if any of you are interested, next picture. Lamborghini was very hospitable. Lamborghini let us in their Lamborghinis, okay? So we got into the most precious thing that Lamborghini had to offer, and we started drooling. We had to clean it up, and we looked at this beautiful car, but it was an incredible joy to be able to say, this thing that we value and is of great value to some people, you're welcomed in. And oftentimes, we stand at a far when it comes to Christianity. Jesus, thank you for whatever you've done. I'm going to give you a thumbs up like this. But we don't, like, kind of walk into it. And see, what Jesus does is he says, come on in. I partner with you. We've all been to museums. We've been to, to showrooms. We've been to people's homes where you go, don't touch anything. Do not knock that over, right? Don't touch it. It's precious. Jesus goes, it's precious. Come in and make a mess. Come in and make a mess with it. Come and sit with me. Come and be a part of this thing. Right? He says, the most precious thing I have to offer you is the good news of my son, his life, his death, his resurrection for you. And the other most precious thing I give is myself. Right? The Holy Spirit indwelling your life. You want a partner in that? You want koinonia in that? You want a fellowship around that? Go do what you're going to do from 9 to 5, but have the mindset of Christ. We are partners in the gospel. Right, this is what Paul is talking about at the beginning. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Trinity exists to make and mature followers of Jesus for the good of others. What happens if you partner in that and it becomes more than a mantra? What if you begin to say, actually, my church exists for Jesus' glory, but I exist. I exist to make and mature followers of Jesus for the good of others. That's what we're talking about. And this isn't, this isn't our vision. This is Jesus' vision. The last thing he said before he left this planet was, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're adopting his words as our vision, and your life begins to have so much joy when you adopt that vision for yourself. So partnership in the gospel. Not a high five, not a thumbs up, but a come on in, let's get messy together. Secondly, progress. Verse four. Verse four. Verse four says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why would you say, I want to join in this joint venture with Jesus? I want to become a grace partner. I want to become a gospel partner. What you're saying then at that point is, I want to become a doulos, right? I want to become a slave as well. I want to become a servant of this king. Why would anybody make that sort of decision? And I want to say it's because tethering Because joint ventures are an an inevitable and unavoidable part of life. You can't avoid it. You're going to tether yourself to something or to someone. From the very beginning, we are tethered to people. So many of us think we are so independent. Did you forget about the first six, seven years of your life? How about the first 18 years of your life? Did you pay the bills? Did you put food on the table? 
No, in no way. But we go, I'm so self-made. I'm so independent. I'm tethered to nothing and no one. It's so untrue. And all you need is just a bit of suffering to creep into your life for you to realize that. I thought I was so independent. I thought it was all about me. And then you realize I'm so dependent. I'm so thin. I'm so incapable. Without the grace and mercy of God, there is no partnership. There is no me. There is no life. All of life is mercy. We have to push against that as Christians to go, yes, individualism is significant, but it's not everything. And I am not independently self-made. Tethering and joint ventures are a part of what it means to be human. We are looking for somebody looking for us. We are looking for something good, right? We are looking for somebody to do us good. And this is what Jesus says he's all about. The good work that I started in you, I am going to bring it to completion. Let's break that down for a moment. Christianity says that our joint ventures with God always begin through his initiation. If you have followed the life of Jesus in any way, and I'm not assuming you have, maybe you're brand new to Christianity, but if you've looked at all at the original documents and his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you will notice that when Jesus is calling out to people, he's the one saying, follow me. People don't come to Jesus and tug on his robe and say, can I follow you? That's not what we see in the story. Jesus is the one who's the master. He's the one who's the great shepherd. He's speaking to the sheep over and over again. He goes, hey, you, and he calls them by name, Peter, James, John, will you follow me? But see, he's the point of origin on this map we call salvation. It's about him. He's the one who initiates discipleship. Ephesians 2 says it this way. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Romans 5.8 says it this way. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that, not by work, so that no one can boast. This is the essence of Christianity. He goes, I want to make some progress in your life. I'd like to change your life. I'm going to begin a good work. When you were my enemy, I came for you. It is by grace, not by merit, not by attending church, not by performing good religious deeds. It is by grace that I have broken into your world. Right? I began that work in your life. Let me give you another specific example from Acts chapter 16, the foundation of this chapter, the foundation of the church at Philippi. Did you know if you go to Acts 16, write it down and go read it this week. In Acts 16, the Apostle Paul is walking around with his buddies. They're trying to figure out where to go. The Holy Spirit's nudging them along, as I mentioned, from city to city to city through modern-day Greece and Turkey, and they want to go into Asia. They want to go into a specific place, Bithynia and Phrygia and all these places that we can't pronounce. They want to go into all of these ancient cities. But the text says this beautiful verse. It says, the Spirit of God prevented them from going in. Isn't that amazing? I want that. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to those places. And then the Apostle Paul gets this Vision, he has a dream of the Macedonian man, the man from Greece who's speaking to the Apostle Paul in his head and in his heart. This is a vision from Jesus. And the vision simply says, the voice simply says, come and help us. Little did he know that the Macedonian man was first a Macedonian woman. 
Remember, and her name is Lydia. Come and help us. Come into our world. He wasn't going there. That wasn't Paul's agenda. See, but my point is the Spirit of God is beginning good work. Paul had an agenda to go that way. And the, the Spirit of God said, no, 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 not over there, European soil. Let's go to Europe. Let's go to this little place called Philippi. See, from beginning to end, the gospel is about God's initiative. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So often, let me speak to Christians for a moment. So often we assume that God saves me by grace. It's on him. But then we assume we make progress in and of ourselves. It's on me. And I do not want to minimize effort. Christianity's work. Christianity takes hard, like any good discipline, like anything worthy. You have to put in some, some effort, but you don't have to earn anything. The gospel is diametrically opposed to earning salvation, but it's not opposed to working it out, to saying that being a Christian in a modern environment is a difficult thing, that I have to work hard at relationships so I'm known and loved and so I can give love and be known. This is difficult work. Being a church is not easy, but... This is not what verse 6 is saying. It says that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sustain you until the, until the day that you stand in front of Jesus himself. And lots of Christians have wrestled through this. In Galatians, Paul is writing to another young church. And he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? I want to say that joyless Christianity forgets that God is a sustainer. Has Christianity felt joyless to you? Man, there's, like, there's no joy. There's no meaning. There's no, there's no purpose. Man, I, I know I should care. I don't care. See, this is why practicing freedom often takes good theology, the right belief, and somebody who's going to say, I know your heart. I know where you're running. I know where you've gotten off track. I'm going to help veer you towards the centerpiece of Christianity. It's God's sustaining work in your life. Yes, he saves you, but the same grace that saves you is the same grace that sustains you. How does that work? Let's just ask that question for a moment. What's he doing it says he's going to bring something to completion. What's he after? Well, number one, he's after God's greatest ambition in, in your life is that you would look more and more like Jesus Christ himself. He's after conformity to Jesus in your life, not conformity to the Southern California version of comfort. I love that storyline, but that's not God's greatest ambition in your life. His greatest ambition is that you would look more like Jesus Christ. And he goes, and I started that grace thing, all right? Let's just call it a grace thing, and I'm going to bring it to completion. Have no doubt, I'm that sort of God. Right? Many of you are successful, or maybe like me, not so successful. Do it yourself first. You've got great ambition at work, in family, yard projects, house projects, uh, but you leave some of them undone. You get bored. You get distracted. You lose interest. Got a little too hard. Couldn't find the right YouTube video to be able to figure out what do I do next. So you got all these projects left undone. What the scripture is saying is God's not like that. He's not like that at all. He does not get bored. He does not get distracted. What he begins, he completes. The grace that started this thing in your life is the same grace that's going to complete this thing in your life. What's he trying to complete? He wants you to look like Jesus. 
And guess how many tools he has at his disposal to do that? All of them. Infinite. Anything. And often he uses the hard things to chisel you away. But he is going to complete that which he started in your life. You do not have to worry. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to beg. Jesus, come and be at work in my life. He goes, if I've started it, come and abide in me. Come and abide in me. I will complete it. The question is, are you abiding in him? Are you sitting with him? Are you giving him access? He wants to get this stuff done. He goes, look, it's been on pause way too long. I would love to reinitiate. I would love to reengage. I have gone nowhere. I have a plan for you, but we partner in this thing. We are gospel partners in this thing. How amazing. God says, I want to partner with you. Come on back. Let me sustain what's going on in your life. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion as we walk in step with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, whose goal in your life is gospel and grace partnership, a joint venture of love, where you know that what was started by Jesus will, in fact, be completed. This is where he prays, and this is where I'll end. He says, having said all of that in my little introduction to you, I'm a doulos, I'm coming for you, so is Jesus. I want to partner in the gospel, and he prays for them. He prays that this joint venture would go deep. So I'm going to read from the message version because it's a beautiful translation and paraphrase of what we read earlier. But these are verses 9 through 11. Having said all of that, Paul prays. So let's listen, and then I'll close this. Paul says, so this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the way your spirit animates it. It's not an old dead letter. It's alive. It's as alive as the moment they read it for the first time. The same Holy Spirit is at work right here in this church in the same way that it was in Philippi. So I pray that we'd have a fresh hearing and that through Paul's example, a man in chains we would learn to practice freedom. He is a slave, but he says he's more free than he's ever been because of Jesus. So then we're left with this question, who or what is our master? Who or what is guiding us through life? What have we initiated a joint venture? Who or what are we partners with? There's nothing wrong with business ventures. There's nothing wrong with ambition. But if it's number one, it will crush us. Lord Jesus, I pray for the mindset of Christ to be upon this family, that we would not just give time or give tithes, give money, that we would partner with you, that we would adopt the mindset of the gospel, that wherever we are sent, we are sent there for you, 
to make Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. That's our prayer. More people would get involved in the glory and praise of our King. That's what this church is for. That's why we started it. We're three years into it. Give us many more, many more years, but much more fruit in making Jesus beautiful and attractive to all. Would your spirit rest on us, send us out with love and affection, and empower us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.